Hello and welcome to the African Data Scientist Podcast, a podcast where we get to tell the story of the African AI and data science potential. I'm your host for this episode, Stephen Oladili. In this episode, we had a conversation with Uncle A. Patel, who is an AI and machine learning entrepreneur and famously known for his Amazon best-selling book, Unsupervised Learning with Python. He has co-founded and leads data and AI departments in two startups. We talked a lot about his journey from the university to engaging in AI entrepreneurship, as well as the lessons learned from those, how different mainstream entrepreneurship is from AI entrepreneurship, lessons learned from building AI startups, and priceless entrepreneurial advice for businesses and institutions looking to adopt AI technologies to solve problems. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate 5 star wherever you're listening to your podcast and share with your colleagues and social network. The show notes contain other details and major links mentioned in the episode. Now, without further ado, let's dive right into the episode. Welcome, Uncle. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I was so glad and delighted you came on our show today. And on this episode, we are really, really excited to have this conversation with you. I mean, you're one of the persons we, we adore so much in the community, as well as looking at your stakes in the supervised learning uh, realm as well. Welcome once again. Please, can you introduce yourself to our listeners, including your background and, of course, what you're currently working on? Absolutely. Um, so I am uh, the author of Hands-On Unsupervised Learning Using Python. I think a lot of people in the community know me from that particular book. Uh, but I'm also very much an applied practitioner. Um, so I actually run two different companies. One is a consulting company called River AI Consulting that I co-founded last year. Uh, and it's really in, uh, geared to help companies adopt better data AI strategies. So a lot of that work comes through workshops and um, some engagements on the consulting side. And then I also have a product company uh, called Glean, um, where I'm the head of data. uh, And that company is really uh, geared to automate the finance function by using a lot of computer vision and NLP to take paper invoices, convert them into digital data, and then once it's digital data, you can run things like time series analysis as well as anomaly detection to point out anomalies and insights for uh, companies to address as part of managing their vendors. Hmm, okay, awesome. This looks good. Uh, of, of course, looking at your background, it's, it's really an impressive resume. Looking at your bio and your entrepreneurial journey per se as well. And of course, what you're currently working on at Glean and River AI. Now, of course, from your impressive resume, you've spent so much time in the industry, co-founding various companies and leading AI and data teams. How has that journey been for you from you know college and Princeton to where you are right now? That's an excellent question. I mean, for me, it hasn't been a very conventional journey, uh, right? Okay. So I don't have a computer science background. Uh, I graduated college uh, over 10 years ago. Uh, computer science was uh, obviously very popular, but nowhere near as popular as it is today. Um, mm, yes. Data science and really even machine learning, AI, unsupervised learning, supervised learning, they weren't really topical items 10 years ago, right? What you did have was this really blossoming field of statistics, econometrics, like quantitative analysis, and financial engineering was a hot topic back then, quantitative modeling and such. And really the best firms to work for, if you were of the quantitative set, were um, hedge funds, right? These were companies, uh, finance uh, companies that uh, really absorbed a lot of data and did a lot of meaningful data analysis. So I actually 
uh, in a majored in uh, more on the economic side, went to go work for uh, Wall Street, worked for a hedge fund called Bridgewater Associates, which is one of the largest hedge funds. Uh, it is the largest hedge fund, one of the most successful to date. And, um, okay. and I was a trader there. So I analyzed lots and lots of data, uh, essentially doing data mining and, um, and coming up with good quantitative strategies to trade. Uh, the portfolio that we had. And, um, and after I did a few years at Bridgewater, I went off to start a hedge fund of my own, ran it for five years. And really that hedge fund was using a good bit of machine learning, right? So it was using data, like conventional data, alternative data, and, um, and a good bit of machine learning. And that's where I really got into the data science and ML side. And once that journey started, once I really got going uh, in 2012, it's been an incredible journey just getting up to speed and programming side with Python on learning the new frameworks like TensorFlow and TypeTorch, yeah. building yeah. models and such. So uh, th that's sort of where my journey began. And, and then it's catapulted me here where I'm today. Oh, wow. It's been such an interesting entrepreneurial journey from the hedge fund to, you know, founding your own company and now to where you are at Clean and of course, um, River AI. How is life as an AI and ML entrepreneur? Um, I'm kind of thinking, is it different from, you know, mainstream entrepreneurial lifestyle or it's, uh, they, these are just the same thing with um, two different names to them? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's really interesting to be an entrepreneur in the AI ML space, primarily because, you know, if you're, if you're in AI and ML as a academic or as a researcher, you always want to be on the cutting edge side of things in doing your research, right? But when you're an entrepreneur, you actually don't want to be on the cutting or bleeding edge. You actually want to try some tried and tested methods um, yeah. that have been, uh, and there's been a lot of support in the community, for example, there's been a lot of documentation. Um, you could actually push into a commercial setting, like a production setting. So you prefer stability, even if the technology is a, is a little bit old. So I think as an AI ML entrepreneur, there are a lot of things that keep happening, right? There's, it takes an immense amount of effort to stay on top of the latest research. But one thing that I've learned to do is not actually focus on the, the cutting edge side of things and really just focus on what's been stable and, and tested and really adopt a lot of that. And, and that's where uh, I think life as an AI ML entrepreneur is different than a mainstream entrepreneur. Where a mainstream entrepreneur, you don't have kind of new technologies coming in uh, week by week, month by month, right? Things aren't changing quite as fast. In AI ML, that's not the case. Things are moving very, very fast. And you have to be able to you know, basically drown out the noise because that's going to be distracting and focus on your core build. Yeah, really, really awesome. Great to know the difference between those two because AI ML, of course, an evolving field and rapidly um, evolving, making sure that we can use tried and tested methods. Thank you so much for, for that insight, Uncle. Now, of course, you mentioned that you're the author of the amazing best-selling book on supervised learning with Python. And um, it's really an amazing book, by the way. We use it in our practical machine learning course, our students there, and it's been amazing so far for us. So what prompted you to write the book on supervised learning with Python? And how did you come about the idea? The genesis of that book really was was around my own work on the applied side of things mm -hmm. using unsupervised okay. learning. I mean, if you look at the machine learning world as a whole, there's a lot of really just there's a lot of enthusiasm for supervised learning, particularly computer vision and NLP. And then with unsupervised learning, a lot of the discussion there is in the theoretical or academic space. And what I wanted to do by writing this book was show that unsupervised learning can be used in an applied practical setting. And that's essentially what I did. So I was working for an Israeli firm at the time. Uh, we were tackling a lot of problems in the anomaly detection space. 
uh, particularly around anti-money laundering and fraud detection. And I saw this opportunity to show a lot of people that unsupervised learning can be used in applied settings, right? That it's not this theoretical thing. It's not far off in the future. It can be used today. And in fact, it's so valuable that people in the applied side invest time in this because the majority of the world's data is not labeled, right? Mm -hmm. So if you work with just labeled data sets, you're only going to focus on a small set of problems that supervised learning is able to deal with, but these vast majority of problems would never get touched. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, that's pretty awesome. I mean, having to stand out from their park there with unsupervised learning because, you know, most people look towards supervised learning and, you know, looking at ideas from top pioneers in the field like Andrew Eng saying that unsupervised learning might probably be the best approach to go um, to proper, you know, AGI or, you know, whatever the, the field looks forward to. So, but talking about supervised learning, do you think unsupervised learning would ever achieve the, the same relevance as supervised learning? And, you know, if yes, why do you think so? I think eventually, yes, probably even more relevance. And the reason I say that is is for the same reasons you just alluded to, which is the only path to AGI is through unsupervised Mm -hmm. learning. You need machines to be able to learn from very few labels in the data set, right? Um, That's how, uh, for example, toddlers, children, human children, uh, learn. They see a few uh, labeled examples and then are able to extrapolate from that and then able to learn without even seeing the labels firsthand. And yes, they may, may make mistakes, but basically they learn from very few examples, like you know, zero-shot learning, one-shot learning. Like that type of learning needs to be need, needs to be possible for AGI to come into existence. Otherwise, it won't. And so, unsupervised learning, initially from the research realm, and then later in the applied realm, will lead us to AGI. And therefore, I, th- I do think it's going to be as relevant. It's just going to take quite some time to get there. Of course, it's going to take quite some time to get to the same or even more relevance. Thank you so much for, for that insight, Angkor. Now, of course, taking a look at your resume again, Angkor, I'm tempted to ask the question, what does it take to build a successful AI startup? You know, judging from your vast experiences running as an AI entrepreneur, as well as um, co-founding and founding startups. That's a great question because I think a lot of people think that if they know AI, ML, like that space, they know the technology, they think that they can go build a successful startup. Um, and I think that having really deep AI, ML knowledge is great. Like it's a, it's a prerequisite, yeah. obviously, for an AI startup. But you also need a lot of the conventional players. So the conventional players, in my mind, include domain expert. So whatever field you're trying to uh, apply AI, ML to, you need someone that deeply knows the field knows the present day problems, um, you know, knows like uh, why applying AI or ML in that space could be very, very successful. Right. And um, typically uh, the domain expert comes from uh, like, for example, in the case of Glean, it comes from someone that knows finance really, really well, knows um, the CFO function, knows how invoices are dealt with and knows the pain points, which is you need very uh, low cost labor to work on a large volume of invoices. And typically a lot of this gets processed manually through spreadsheet programs. So again, it's a high volume, highly repetitive space, really ripe for AI ML to uh, attack. And, um, and so you need that domain expert, but you also need someone that can either do the conventional software engineering because you do need to create the pipelines for your AI ML model to kind of do its magic and ultimately deliver good results through a, like a, a user-friendly web app or mobile app. Um, so you need conventional software engineers. And then you also need someone okay. that knows product really well, that can design a product that's addictive. So you have product conventional software engineering, domain experts, and then, uh, and, then, and then people that know AI ML as well. 
All right. Product, product managers, perhaps domain experts and people who know the field well. And of course, the, the talents in the AI and ML industry. Of course, looking back to when you started building your AI and data startups, are there things you feel you would have done differently from uh, when you were building them now looking back? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the, the painful lesson that I've learned is that AI cannot automate everything um, that's, that occurs in like the real world, right? The, okay. the data in the real world, extraordinarily noisy, very messy. And so all the startups that I work on now, there's always a human component and there's thoughtful design on how to have this like fault tolerant handoff when the machine can't get something right. You have this handoff to humans. In a couple of years ago, when I was working on AI startups, I was really trying to go for a hundred percent automation, hundred percent AI. And that's like a dream. Of course, everyone wants to get there, but it's not really possible, right? Even if you get to 80% automation through AI, uh, and believe 20% for humans, or let's say 90% automation, 10% for humans, that in most spaces is a very successful outcome. So shoot for that and keep the human in mind as you build these startups. Don't try to automate them out because it's just not possible today. Mm, all right. So human loop AI type of system. So humans plus AI would perhaps give you a stronger, more successful AI startup. Yeah. Thank you so much for for such insight. So what are, what, what are your best practices and tips for, you know, building great ML products from unlabeled data? Because we had a session with you in our practical machine learning course. So listeners, you can check that out in the show notes. We, we leave that in our YouTube channel as well, where Uncle talked about building great ML products from unlabeled data. Looking back at that, that now, or just generally from your expertise and experience, yeah, what are your best practices for, for building great ML products from unlabeled data? You know, do you have any tips in mind you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I think when you build a product, um, you should try to use supervised learning if you have a labeled data set, right? But in okay. most cases, especially if there's not enough labels or the patterns are changing quite a bit, um, and this occurs, for example, in the fraud world, for example, insurance fraud or cyber fraud, the patterns change a lot. And so even if you have labeled examples of fraud, a supervised solution would be able to get the previous cases of fraud really well, but they wouldn't be able to handle newly emerging cases. So my um, recommendation for uh, unlabeled data and, and how to work with it is uh, try to use various unsupervised learning techniques to uh, solve the problem, in this case, fraud detection, right? But then what you want to do is then you want to validate the goodness of your unsupervised learning solution by labeling a portion of the data set. So you have like a small labeled data set, like your test set, then you could use that to validate your unsupervised uh, approaches and you'll know which unsupervised approaches are actually leading to great results. And you want to continue to do this, keep labeling a small percentage of your data set so you get good evaluation metrics and then iterate through the unsupervised learning cycle. And so you blend like this, be- this beautiful blend of supervised and unsupervised techniques. And that's my biggest point is like, don't try to think of this as like a pure unsupervised play. Think of it as a combination of supervised and unsupervised. And unsupervised learning. All right. So unsupervised, post-supervised learning, probably um, give it the best bet for building great ML products. Thank you so much once again, Uncle, for that. Of course, before you build, you know, great products, there has to be a problem you're trying to solve. And uh, you need to make sure that you identify such problems before, you know, you go on to build products. Now, what is your framework or do you have any framework or rule of thumb for finding problems that can be solved with AI? Looking at your entrepreneurial background as well with the companies you've built. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the problem is that I have to fit a couple of 
attributes. One, they need to be fairly simple to solve, right? Um, so like a, a humane domain expert would be able to solve it pretty quickly. It needs mm-hmm. to be yeah. high volume. So there needs to be a lot of volume coming through, right? And it needs to be something that today is highly repetitive and manual uh, such that humans are mostly doing it. Right. So okay. I'll give you an example. Uh, museums today have a lot of artwork that they need to classify. And once you're trained in art, you can classify that piece of art. But it's you know you need a lot of humans to do it. You can't. There's like it, it's just like an easy task. It takes like a few seconds to do for a domain expert. But there's such high volume of classification that has to occur. That's really right. It's highly manual, highly repetitive fairly simple to do like every single instance and you can generate a lot of labeled examples, for example, and then you can uh, replace that with ML. Same thing with um, processing of documents like invoices, real estate leases, 10 Qs, 10 Ks in finance. Um, A lot of this document processing can be automated. It's very, very ripe for AI. Okay. Okay. Most of the places where humans do repetitive tasks and work. Now, of course, um, this podcast is tagged the African Data Scientist. It's a podcast show where we get to explore and tell the stories of the AI and data science potential for Africa and Africans, of course. Now, Africa is a continent where we have lots of countries, of course, about 54 countries with unarguably great human resources in the continent, which inevitably means, you know, lots of data and even potential for more data. How do you think startups and institutions solving problems can prepare for this challenge and take advantage of data, of course, generated on the, in the continent using AI technology? Yeah, I think Africa um, obviously can use a lot of the learnings from, say, the U.S. and China and other places where AI has been a little bit further along. And I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind. One, data capture is very, very important. Okay. Um, so uh, capturing as much data as you can and storing it as early on as possible is, is vital. And that means all the governments, all the universities, the institutions, the startups that are working in, in the data world, they should have great data capture. And part of that data capture is possible because Africa is a continent where mobile adoption has been has been pretty incredible, right? It's like mobile yeah. native in many ways. So you can build that data capture in the devices. But the other big thing that's very important here is data privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So protecting user uh, data, having good governance of that data, how it's used, how it's shared, right? Because if you could anonymize that those data sets and make it available to share, you will help AI advance in Africa and other places. But you also need to be mindful of anonymizing that data set properly and not having some bias or some sort of targeting because you've been able to um, identify the particular individuals from those large data sets, that data capture that I, that I mentioned. So it's both get a lot of data, capture a lot of data, but then have great governance to protect the users whose data you've collected. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, really great take because I'm um, looking at the continent so far. Yes, there's data, but the form at which the data, of course, is being captured is really a problem because most of them were not really digital. Uh, most of them were you know, on paper and everything. And this is kind of very difficult for us to really transition all of these large piles of data in paper and all of those formats into, into suitable digital formats. And uh, like you said, build ca- data capturing devices and make sure that, which is absolutely vital, make sure that data privacy is a key thing in, in all of these things. Now, moving on to our next question, and I'm going to be talking about these startups and problem-solving startups and institutions again. Do you have any framework for how these startups and institutions can create their data and AI strategies, can come up with those? I think there's a little bit of a cold start problem for startups and institutions, which is they need to have some good data to design 
uh, like data-driven products or have AI strategies. So I think yeah. one of the things that these startups institutions need to do is consolidate the data assets. And these data assets are probably, you know, maybe they're decentralized, maybe they're not all in the cloud, maybe it's like super noisy and there's like a, a good bit of data engineering work that needs to be done. But that's, that's sort of where you want to start is work with data that you already have because you've spent a lot of time and energy trying to capture this data and uh, getting that data in a place where you can actually run great strategies on top of that is the first big challenge. That's more of a data engineering challenge. And then once you have that, you also want to think ahead. And this is something we get through a lot in our um, workshops that we do at River AI Consulting is these companies and these institutions need to think about really great data capture and, and having like a great schema, great data architecture to be able to warehouse a lot of the data that they capture and then make it available not only to programmers, because programmers can work with data by pulling it into programming environments, but you also want to think about how that data can be accessible to non-technical individuals. Right. So like through BI solutions and such, uh, because that, that way you start empowering, democratizing data throughout your institution. That is very, very important. All right. Um, thank you so much. Accessibility is absolutely crucial for us to effectively solve problems. And um, of course, um, having great data capture as well will lead to perhaps lead to the next step of creating a good AI strategy. Now, of course, having co-founded a number of startups and made hiring decisions as well, I believe, how would you advise somebody looking for a job in data science and AI startups and companies to prepare themselves for you know, a career there? I think the thing I see a lot uh, with hires that I make uh, and resumes I go through and look at is individuals have great academic backgrounds. They've studied AI ML. They know the cutting edge techniques. Maybe they've done a, a small project on GitHub and, and they've shown like really great performance. You know, the problem with that is that there's a good bit of knowledge that they need to acquire uh, in order to take what they know of in, in the AI world and apply it in the real world. That okay. means, you know, deploying the model, uh, writing wrappers around the the, the the models or deployments to be able to solve particular problems. So the more applied work that individuals can do as they're trying to promote their portfolio of knowledge and, and work, the better, right? And, and a lot of this can be done on GitHub. You can share your GitHub repositories, make them public, do a post on Medium, uh, and then and then showcase what you know about training machine learning models and deploying those models and solving a problem. You can even spin up a little web app, a lightweight web app. Um, okay. And that way you show an incredible drive for like entrepreneurial energy, for applied work. And then the a hiring manager like myself can say, oh, this person not only knows the like the academic side of things, but is very, very applied. I could see this person coming in, plugging away and contributing to the existing work that the team is doing. That's what I look for. And that's okay. what I think is missing from a lot of residents. All right. So applied chain, a lot of applied work. And of course, explain um, those capabilities and open source tools. All right. Thank you so much for, for, for that once again. Um, now, looking at um, your background as an applied practitioner, would you advise a working practitioner or somebody getting started in AI and ML to be generalist or specialist in the field of AI and data science? Which one are you going to look for, generalist or specialist? 
I think you need a little bit of both, but okay. I think if you're starting out, uh, being a generalist is better because okay. you don't even know all the different things that you should at least know or be aware of. Um, so it's better to be a generalist initially, maybe doing rotations, learning NLP, computer vision, and detection, and just getting your, your feet wet, your like knowledge built out of the various spaces. Um, but then once you you know, kind of know these different areas, particularly if the startup you're working for or founding is focused on one specific branch of AI, go and go deep in that, right? Become a specialist. You could always become specialist in other fields too over the length of your career. Your career is going to be a very long one, but start general, then hone in, specialize, make yourself a real domain expert, real specialist in that sub branch of AI, and then let, lead with that, right? You don't want to be pigeonholed into just being the NLP guy. But if you're the NLP guy, and later on you get this opportunity to also become a specialist in CV to some extent, go take that. But generalize first, specialize next, and then continue to specialize over the over the course of your career. All right, generalize first, then specialize next, and of course, uh, specialize further in more fields. Thank you, thank you so much once again. I think the area where you are at now is unsupervised learning with your with your book and your expertise and that you know what are the latest advances in unsupervised learning today that you that you think people should know of yeah i think unsupervised learning has a couple of great applications obviously anomaly detection has been making tremendous progress right so taking very high dimensional data and then mapping to, to in, a, in a smaller dimensional space and then finding the interesting patterns. This is very relevant for finance that are in you know, finance companies, banks, for example, that are, that are trying to solve uh, money laundering with better AML solutions. For fraud detection, this is good for banks as well as for insurance companies. This is also amazing in healthcare or IoT, like actually heavy machinery and, and uh, just devices in general. And the reason yeah. why it's great is because healthcare for example, like uh, IoT devices in healthcare or IoT devices like self-driving cars, they generate an immense amount of data. Yeah. And a lot of that data is like is machine data, right? It's not like you can't you can't interpret that as human. It's also so high volume and so high dimensional that you don't know what to do with it. You can't identify the like, sort of patterns in the data that a human should go investigate more time in. But that's where unsupervised learning is really, really great at, which is taking this high volume data and then mapping it to a smaller set of dimensions and then finding the patterns and surfacing them for greater analysis, for deeper analysis. And so I think anomaly detection is, is something that a lot of people should be aware of if they're okay. not. The other area that unsupervised learning is making a lot of progress is actually in the world of NLP. So a lot of the NLP progress that we've seen is from unlabeled data sets, right? You just feed in massive amounts of textual data and the language models are able to find uh, essentially meaning in that data from from context cues, right? Okay. Um, so it's like in some ways learning without labels and that is having a lot of progress. And I know that is like really in the category of NLP and so people don't think of that as being an unsupervised play, but a lot of the progress in NLP has been because of unsupervised learning uh, at its core. Okay, thank you um, so much for, for such knowledge there. Do you have any advice for people starting to apply ML and AI using unlabeled data to reward problems? You know, whether that be through uh, a company or a, a community or a nonprofit or an institution, whatever, both in Africa and away from Africa. My advice here, because on unsupervised learning and working with unlabeled data is still a fairly new space, is try to find advisors. Like if you're if you run a startup or if you're working for a startup, try to find advisors that have done work in this space, right? Um, and, and these t these guys typically work 
for insurance companies or banks for these girls, right? They have worked for banks or insurance companies. And they're the ones that can basically transfer knowledge of like what works well, what doesn't work well in the unsupervised learning space. There's also now great documentation available online on how to solve some of these problems because it's actually very daunting. It's more daunting to be in unsupervised learning than supervised learning. Because with supervised learning, there's a lot of community support. There's immense documentation. It's a fairly mature space. Unsupervised learning is extraordinarily daunting, which is why I always say find people that have done this before, that have struggled through these problems before, and um, and get their knowledge, right? Use their knowledge. The other thing that I will say is that have modest uh, expectations of what unsupervised learning can do, especially if you're just starting out. So you maybe label a portion of your data, try to solve it using supervised techniques, and then try to solve that same problem without using the labels, okay. right? Uh, use unsupervised learning, and then evaluate the goodness of the results by using the labels that you have as part of your test set to see if the unsupervised learning solution is on par with the supervised learning solution. If it is, it's great because then you can scale it out to more data sets, more problems, mm-hmm. but yeah. have modest expectations expectations, do trial and error, test whether you're seeing good results by labeling data sets. And I think that way you won't get disappointed, right? I I think unsupervised learning has a lot of promise, but it's also very challenging. So you just need to know that going in. All right. So uh, be very empirical and um, of course be modest with expectations. Right. Thank you. Uncle, do you have any departing thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing for me right now is that machine learning and AI, I think, has had a tremendous amount of progress in like the B2C space, so consumer okay. products, but um, the B2B space, so like enterprise software, AI and ML has been, maybe it hasn't been as well adopted. Um, it's not, hasn't been as well pushed, but I think what you'll start seeing is you'll see more and more business functions get automated through machine learning and AI. And a lot of that means uh, automating document processing. So um, I would say, you know, if you haven't looked at intelligent document processing, you haven't seen like NLP and unsupervised learning work well in that space yet or haven't explored it, go do so because I think that's the next big wave of like commercial use of ML. Um, And I want more people to be aware of it. It's something that I'm actively working on. I think more people should be working on that problem. It's a very meaningful problem to work on enterprise software using ML. Uh, So yeah, that's my final word here. All right. Thank you so much, Uncle. Once again, it's been a wonderful and enjoyable conversation with you. It's been like this, this episode has been packed with lots of knowledge and insights from, from you. Thank you so much once again for coming to our show, for, you know, helping out the community, supporting our endeavors. We appreciate a lot. And thank you so much, listeners, for tuning into the show once again. Um, of course, um, like I said, every links will be in the show notes. Every important links mentioned will be in the show notes. And uh, we had a session with Anchor. If you if you want to learn from Anchor, you can get to um, learn from that session on our YouTube channel. Otherwise, see you in the next episode. Bye bye.